Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And this episode, we are joined by Samantha Luke to talk about chocolate. Very exciting. Hi, hi Sam. <laughs> hi. Sam is a, she's a former professional chocolate eater. Um, so she used to be the head of traceability and tastings and education at Soma Chocolate Maker, which is like one of the best chocolate companies. It's uh, it's Toronto based, is it not? Oh, uh, we are. Yeah, amazing. Uh, so super cool job. And now she's moved on to an even cooler job or just as cool job uh, working at with Wherefore ERP, working with companies uh, across a bunch of different industries to look at their sort of like traceability efforts. So perfect for an ethics podcast because ethics is sort of your your job every day. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, definitely the traceability part um, is has become a growing component of so many different industries. So it's been really fun to get to like take my chocolate knowledge and run with it in all different places. That's so cool. Um, I'm wondering just to like start us off, can you tell us a little bit about how chocolate sort of connects with your story, how how you got to be involved with, with chocolate? Oh, it was a little bit of an accident. I did not expect to end up in chocolate at all. Um, but I finished my undergraduate degree at the University of King's College. I did an international development degree um, and a history degree. And I had ended up focusing a lot in um, food security. So studying food security in the Caribbean and then studying kind of like the intersection of that um, and history. So understanding historical commodities, um, the kind of impact of the slave trade and the sugarcane trade um, on our history, especially in the Americas. And then I graduated and I didn't have a job. And um, I don't know if you know this about being a history major, but it's sort of hard to get a job when you're like just a big history nerd with no other skills. Um, and so I got a job as a barista for Soma Chocolate um, and then kind of wormed my way into learning about their process, how they work with their farmers. Um, and at one point my boss was like, I kind of wish like it was in her feedback review. She's like, I wish you just cared more about the chocolate. And I was like, Oh, I care so much about the chocolate. Let me show you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we did. Wow. That's so amazing. And so, um, what, like, what is it like being a head of traceability and tastings and education? It seems like quite a lot of jobs all stuffed into one title. So <laughs> is your job just to taste the chocolate or? <laughs> <laughs> so definitely there were points where um, my, my old boss would really like to come up to me and be like, here, eat this. Um, and I'd be like, oh, what is it? And he was like, oh, it's your job to eat it. Like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so definitely part of it was tasting. So, you know, there's a lot, and I, I think a lot about this a lot, is there's a lot of classism wrapped up in um, flavor and, you know, what tastes good and who's allowed to eat things that taste good. Um, yeah, so definitely part of it was like, you know, how do we make this accessible? How do we make this um, at every point taste good and elevate that? So definitely like flavor is a huge component of what we're looking for. Um, the head of traceability, some parts of it were like really mundane. So kind of looking at things like lot codes and how much we're buying from a farmer and how much do we use and um, how much waste is there, that kind of uh, sort of more um, inventory based um, like traceability stuff. And a lot of it is food safety too. So there are some laws, there's a 
bunch of different laws depending on if you're in Canada or the UK, EU, US, um, about what's allowed to be in chocolate, what you're allowed to call chocolate. Um, and we definitely tried to kind of like play with that boundary and see like, okay, can we call this chocolate? Like the thing we're doing with the cocoa bean, is it still allowed to be called chocolate if we process it like this? So there's like some aspect of that as well. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Um, and then tastings and educations is a little more self-explanatory. So I got to I got to talk to people about chocolate and eat chocolate with people and um, sometimes talk to classes, uh, students about it. Can I, uh, Kristen, I'm sorry if I'm getting in the way of your, of your questions no, go to you had it. laid out. But can I ask, a, can you explain a little bit more about how classism is affected by the taste of chocolate or the opposite? <laughs> yeah. So there, I, and I think this isn't just restricted to chocolate, but there's this idea that like really good food it has to be like really expensive. So you think about things like champagne or I don't know, like your caviar. And like, if there's this idea that if it's expensive, it also tastes good. And if you don't think it tastes good, then you're just like not cultured enough to like, like it. Um, and chocolate is one of those things that's like super accessible. Like all, I don't want to say everybody, but like so many people have had this experience of eating chocolate. Um, and when you kind of look at the chocolate industry, it's really interesting um, to see this kind of division of people are like, oh, okay, like, oh, dark chocolate is like better chocolate and it's more expensive and it tastes better. But like a lot of people don't like chocolate at all uh, or like dark chocolate at all. Um, and there's this like there's some like weird ideas about like what things should cost and how much money makes something taste better. Um, and we came across this a lot when we were talking about like fine and flavor grade chocolate and especially a lot of the chocolate companies I admire. We talk a lot about like the fact that you can't really have an ethical chocolate that is a cheap chocolate because, and I like to say to my friends, like you're, always going to have someone who's paying for that. Um, the cost of chocolate is hidden a lot of the time in the supply chain. Um, and so if you're eating a cheaper chocolate, there's, you know, someone has made the decision that it should be this price, and they're kind of artificially trying to keep it that way. And so on one end, there's like a ton of access to chocolate. But wrapped up in that is a lot of power dynamics that kind of put the people who are producing the chocolate on their on their back foot, like on the other end of it. Um, so there's a ton of ideas in there. But if you want to unpack that with me a little bit, I'm happy to talk through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think um, um, in the research that I was doing for prep for this episode, it really seems like that sort of um, the the low price of chocolate, it like is connected in a lot of ways to the ethical issues that we'll explore. Um, is that sort of more or less what you found or? Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And I think like, there's a lot of pressure to keep the price of chocolate at what it is. And the fact that you can go into almost any kind of like grocery store or convenience store and find chocolate there. And the chocolate bars are like a dollar to $2. And it really hasn't changed much over time um, means that there have been a lot of sort of corporate pressures um, and sort of like global pressures to keep the price of cacao low so that they can continue to produce chocolate at that price. I wonder just like one last uh, 
question before we move out of like the warm-up section. Um, I'm curious about what your favorite chocolate is, given that you've tasted so many different <laughs> kinds. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, it's, it's really hard because I worked for a chocolate maker for a really long time. And so like most of my favorite chocolates come from them. So if you haven't tried some and you have the opportunity <laughs> to, I, I poured my heart and soul into a lot of those bars and definitely some of my favorite. Um, there is a bar called Guasare. It's uh, named for the region that it comes from, the Guasare River in Venezuela. And uh, Soma makes a 70% bar out of those beans that come from that area. And it's a really incredible chocolate. Um, what, what makes it so incredible? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say exactly what it is. So there's a lot of what we consider like classic chocolate flavors. There's a little bit of bitterness. There's a little, little bit of like coffee and kind of roasted undertones to it. It has a high cocoa butter percentage. That's the fat that's in the cocoa beans naturally occurring. Um, and when you have a high fat percentage, um, the flavors linger on your tongue. All of the flavors in chocolate come from being kind of like fat soluble flavors. So that fat allows it as it moves on your tongue and melts um, to start to like kind of play in your olfactory system. And so high cocoa butter beans um, and naturally occurring high cocoa butter beans that have the flavor compounds in the fat um, are going to taste really incredible. Um, and so that's always been one of the most gorgeous examples. I have a lot of I have a lot of favorites. Um, I am if if you're looking at kind of like stuff you can buy almost everywhere. I am an absolute sucker for turtles. Um, I love caramel nice. and pecans, <laughs> and so like there's always a little part of me in like January when all of them go on sale, where I'm like, okay, I'll let myself do <laughs> it one go. time, and I buy like whatever turtles are on sale from Shoppers Drug Mart. <laughs> Yeah, turtles are like an all-time. They're pretty good. <laughs> are there any interesting chocolate trends that um, would be sort of interesting to talk about? Yeah, um, chocolate trends are really interesting because they, they're they kind of like bakery trends or like food trends. They change really quickly. Um, and, you know, when someone sees something that another chocolate company is doing really innovatively, it's not super hard to kind of like copycat or do riff off similar ideas so they move really quickly i've seen a lot of fun things um playing with really unique flavors um so especially as we start to kind of recognize how global the world is and how many unique flavors you know really haven't been exposed to in the in western markets we get to start to see really interesting um, infusion. So there's a Taiwanese company that makes um, a chocolate that's infused with different teas and their cacao beans are grown in Taiwan and their teas are also grown in Taiwan. And so I think that is super cool. Um, and we're seeing a lot more like interesting infusions like that with different spices, so things like turmeric um, and uh, ginger and uh, lots of like kind of flavors that you wouldn't necessarily associate with chocolate, like your kind of praline nuts, caramels. Um, so that has been a lot of fun to see people play with. Oh, that sounds awesome. Uh, I like the idea of tea chocolate. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, if, if I find some, I'll, I'll let you know where to get it. Perfect. I love it. I think um, while we get into the main theme, there's a very basic question that I would like to ask you, which is, what is chocolate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is um, it's funny because you 
you really get a lot of different definitions of it, but chocolate at its core is one to three ingredients. Um, so cacao or cocoa, um, depending on where you are, uh, is a fruit and it grows on trees and it's kind of like this super, you know, you actually, we call it an ugly fruit. And the farmers that I've talked to say like the uglier it is on the outside, the more beautiful it's going to taste on the inside. And on the (laughs) inside, it's got this kind of like mucus like pulp that tastes like a really sour lychee. Um, It's a little bit sweet. It's a little bit sticky. And um, this pulp is wrapped around a seed. And that seed is what we call a cacao bean. And that bean is essentially taken um, and it gets fermented inside this pulp. So it it ferments inside the pod? Sorry. Um, So so they actually open up the pod and then they pull out the pulp and the seeds and they ferment it with the pulp. Cool. Cool. Didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's um, a really cool fruit. Um, and you're starting to get people who are like making juices with that fruit so you can actually taste just the fruit. And once that seed is fermented, it's dried, um, usually sun-dried. Um, a couple of places will dry over fires. And then chocolate is actually that bean ground up into a really fine paste. Um, and, you know, some countries will define chocolate as you have to have sugar in it, you have to have milk in it, you can add a certain amount of fat percentage in it. Um, But at its core, it's really that bean ground into a really fine paste. And then you start to add milk powder, sugar, and these other things that kind of change the flavor or highlight the flavor of the chocolate. Okay. And is a like, is a cocoa nib the same thing as the bean? Or is that different? Yeah, so that's basically the bean um, just uh, crushed up into tiny little pieces. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> are there sort of like differences in the chocolate making process? Um, or are there sort of like fundamentally the same, same steps each time? Yeah, so it's um, pretty close to a similar process for most people and has been really interesting. So I come from what we call the craft chocolate industry. And so it's a really small, like the idea is that, you know, you're making small batches and you get to work really closely with farmers. Um, and obviously there are these like giant companies like Hershey or Nestle that make chocolate in enormous batches. And it's always been really interesting to me that fundamentally we make chocolate in the same way. We roast the beans. Um, you roast them pretty lightly at around 120 to 125 degrees Celsius. Um, and then you crush them up into cacao nibs. Um, so those are little pieces. And then you start grinding and you basically continue to grind. And all the difference in that grinding process is kind of like how much air you let into it. Um, and there's a little bit of an aeration process and a an evaporation process where you remove acetic acid from the chocolate. And so that's where a chocolate maker has a lot of control over the process and how much acid is left in the chocolate, how long you're going to grind it for, how smooth it's going to get. And there's some kind of like machine limitations too. So um, a lot of craft chocolate makers started like making chocolate in their kitchens or making it in their garages with machines that weren't meant to be made with chocolate, making chocolate. Um, and so you get like really interesting textures that come out of that, um, that are slightly different than your kind of like conventional big machine that was meant to be a chocolate. Well, that's really interesting. And I know you had sort of um, like earlier talked about how um, 
sometimes it's a myth that like more expensive chocolate is better. Um, but I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about how you would tell like quality differences in chocolate. So what kind of things people might think about? Hmm, yeah, so definitely one of the ways is flavor. Um, and when you're tasting a chocolate, you want to kind of pay attention for a couple of things and it you'll get more used to tasting chocolate the more each chocolate you taste. <laughs> um, but some of the things that we look for are kind of like um, mold flavors. So one of the big risks of fermentation is that you can have the development of mold. And so um, if you skip out on the fermentation process, then you don't get all these kind of complex flavors that create the flavor of what we know as chocolate. Um, it's about 25 different flavor compounds that create that. And those wow. <laughs> are created during fermentation. Um, and so if you skip out on the fermentation process, then you don't get those compounds created. And so you kind of lose some of that complexity, but you don't have the risk of mold. Um, if you do a poor job of fermentation, um, then you have this risk of mold. And I think the U.S. allows for something like three to five percent mold bean, moldy beans um, and that's okay. You can pass them through. And so that's definitely a risk <laughs> or like a, that, that happens in chocolate. Um, so you can kind of taste that um, in a chocolate. And it, once you know what it tastes like, it's very distinctive. Yeah. What does moldy chocolate taste like? <laughs> oh, it's got this tang to it. I always think of it. It's like a little bit like blue cheese, but <laughs> not. I don't know. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, some people kind of like it. Um, so it's maybe not a, necessarily a flaw, um, but I, I do think it's maybe not the best. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Other things you can taste for. So sometimes you get over roasting um, and that um, has nothing to do with the farmers that are growing it or the quality of the bean. Um, and that's just kind of like skill in roasting and tasting. Um, roasting is a really short process normally. It's between 10 to 25 minutes. And depending on the bean that you're working with, how much fat is in it, how much heat it takes on, um, it can go from roasted to over roasted in like 30 seconds. Uh, so that's something that you can definitely taste is if it's kind of like burnt or ashy tasting. And a lot of times what chocolate makers will do is if it's over roasted, you can kind of compensate by adding milk or sugar. And it's kind of like covering up the flavor of the chocolate, but also covering up these kind of like imperfections in making chocolate. Right, sure. Add enough sugar to anything and it's pretty good. <laughs> exactly. Um, and when you look at the percentages of some of the chocolate, um, like if you look at a candy bar, uh, it can have like 50% sugar in it. And of course, you're not going to taste any chocolate in it. It's just like chocolate flavoring, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I wonder if, um, if you could talk a little bit about sort of like the history of chocolate. Oh, do you have three hours? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so we'll do a really short, short history. Um, there are some, there's some great books. Um, Michael and Sophie Coey wrote the true history of chocolate about it. Um, and it's really contentious how far chocolate reaches back. Um, so we think that the first known domesticated cacao trees were in, Ecuador and Peru about four to 5,000 years ago, it was very likely that they were all across South America and in Central America around 
4,000 years ago. And we find evidence of that um, on pottery shards. And so um, people are consuming it already at that point. Chocolate as we know it really came to its first form, what we call a drinking chocolate, um, with the Olmec people 1,500 years ago in um, the sort of lower Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico, um, where what's now like Belize, Guatemala, Nicaragua area, Central America. And they were the first people to start drying cacao beans, using them as currency, transporting them across large spaces, um, and then to start grinding them and adding flavors to them. So drinking drinking chocolate. Um, and that was where it was introduced. So as it spread across the Caribbean, that's where it was introduced to European colonizers. So when Christopher Columbus and other conquistadors, European um, imperial powers arrive in the Caribbean, chocolate is already associated with the gods of the people, the indigenous people of Central America. Um, and it's actually the first stimulant drink that we know of that people um, consumed. And they took it back to Europe. And it's in Europe during the Industrial Revolution. So kind of like late 1600s into the 1800s that we get the development of machinery um, that discovers that cacao butter, cocoa butter is solid at room temperature. And so you can kind of create these bars with it. And so it's like 1800 when we start to actually get chocolate in its edible form as opposed to its drinking form. Super interesting. And um, in its early history, chocolate would have mostly been sort of like a bitter drink. Is that right? And then bars were sort of came later. <laughs> yeah, so definitely um, a pretty bitter drink. They did have ways of flavoring it, though, um, that made it really interesting. So we probably think of it more savory. So things like chili pepper, um, bark, tree barks like cinnamon, um, those other flavors where we don't really have sugar, but we also get kind of like the growing sugarcane industry in kind of like 1500. Uh, in Central America. So you also get the introduction of a little bit of sugar and other sweeter sweeteners um, in chocolate as well at that point. For sure. Yeah, it, it struck me while I was doing prep that sugar and chocolate seem to have like a history that's fairly tied together. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, I think that's a sort of a good bridge to start talking about people and chocolate, you know, because both of them have sort of Sugar and chocolate both have sort of like fraught human rights histories and present days. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of the biggest human rights issues are connected to chocolate production. Yeah. Um, so oh, this is a timely, timely conversation to be having. I think the U.S. government or the U.S. Supreme Court this week was hearing arguments about child slavery and the chocolate industry, and in particular, whether big chocolate companies could be implicated in abetting child slavery. And that's one of the probably, I hate to put it like this, but it's probably one of like the sexiest issues of chocolate. And when people think of that, think of like fair trade, and they think of ethical chocolate, they're like, oh, I don't want to eat like slave chocolate. And there's a lot to kind of like break down there. Um, definitely, there has been a long history of indentured servitude, debt bondage, um, child labor in 
uh, cacao, and it's really tied up in the kind of implications of what has been done in West Africa. So this like colonial impact on the countries there. Um, and then the kind of industries that have emerged to support farmers. Um, and cacao was introduced to West Africa in this kind of period of colonization. So when the Spanish and the Portuguese are in the Caribbean and they're importing slaves, they're also bringing back crops um, like cacao and planting them there. Um, and so there's this really long history of interchange in human labor and human trafficking um, and in cacao. And I don't want to, I'm by no means an expert in this, um, <laughs> but definitely can speak to, speak to it a little bit. Um, and you know, today there is a huge amount of pressure on farmers to produce um, enough cacao for the world. And almost 60% of the world's cacao comes from West Africa. And there's almost a stigma attached to it. If you talk to a craft chocolate maker and you say like, oh, why don't you buy chocolate or cacao from West Africa? It's like, oh, there's a lot of like challenges with sourcing from there. And it's it's true. Um, part of that is that the countries themselves, so Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, um, have decided to set sort of like a floor price. Um, so if you buy cacao from one of those countries, there's a set price that is a minimum payment. And in, that, in some ways, that's good. Um, you can say, okay, the market can't drive cacao any lower. Um, but in other ways, it kind of limits how much the industry can grow. Um, so if you have people who want to pay more for it, it can be a little bit difficult to kind of go around um, those kind of like set up government protections. That's really interesting sort of dilemma. Because <laughs> you'd sort of think a price floor is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and a price floor doesn't necessarily mean that the price can't go up. But there are a lot of pressures coming from kind of like big corporate companies um, that say, you know, you know, we can't afford to have the price of chocolate go up because that means that a Kit Kat bar isn't going to cost a dollar anymore. It's going to cost like a dollar fifty, and that's a really noticeable price change. Yeah, I, th I think we'll survive, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you, I think that. But then when you when you start working with like the the bigger numbers and you know people mm -hmm. really, yeah. Um, we we haven't seen we haven't seen that willingness to kind of like step up and say okay I'll I'll pay a little bit more for my chocolate quite yet and I think that's an interesting dilemma for us to ask ourselves is like how much more are you willing to pay for something that you think of as being cheap and accessible yeah so back to labor um, there <laughs> from my research and from what I understand it is the price of cacao that really drives the kind of limit and the amount of labor that is willing to go um, into the cacao industry. So the number of people who are willing to become cacao farmers and the average age of legitimate adult farmers in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana has only gone up because it's nearly impossible to make a living off of it. Um, most of these farmers are being paid like just at poverty line prices. Um, and of course, it's a seasonal crop. Um, and some years are going to be better than others. Um, and a lot of people forget that 
you know, because we don't see chocolate as an agricultural product, you don't see it like you do in orange, um, that, you know, really fluctuates year to year, how much yield you get. Um, And when you're working with some trees, it's like they only yield every four to five years. So you have to be a really good farmer to be able to kind of rotate your crop properly and make sure that you're going to have yield every year or be able to survive years that have lower yield. Really, when you look at the average kind of salary or the average take-home pay for a farmer, it is very low. Um, And the reality of that means that young adults don't want to go into farming. And so there's a lack of labor there. And then uh, it is something that children can do. You know, there's, there's a lot of parts to cacao farming. Some parts of it are really dangerous using machete. And other parts are kind of like good for small nimble fingers that have to sort beans and um, move things around. And so it's there's some kind of like weird incentives happening there that mean that child labor has become more prevalent. It's pretty challenging to think about. And what's more challenging, I think, aside from the fact that this situation exists, is that once the beans um, kind of like leave the farm, they go into these huge commodity markets where they get piled all together and then they go off to enormous chocolate makers where they have no idea which beans came from which farms or who is farming them. Um, And so you kind of lose that section of traceability in the process. So even if you wanted to choose to not engage with farms that didn't use child labor or didn't use slave labor, it can be really challenging to do that. Yeah, that's one of the things that sort of struck me. Um, because a lot of these um, farms are, well, they're mostly s- small farms, are they not? Um, so like, intuitively, I originally thought, oh, well, that's good. They're not like these giant plantations. Maybe more of the income goes back to the farmers. But there's these huge challenges associated with that, too. And it's hard to control. Hadn't thought of it that before. (laughs) And it's really interesting. So we uh, worked with some farmers in Venezuela, and there's not a lot of choice for access to market. So even, you know, if you're a a small farmer, you are pretty reliant on whichever cacao buyer is going to come to your town um, and buy your cacao. You don't get a lot of choice as to who to sell it to. And I think slowly we're seeing that change with small makers trying to create these like direct relationships with farmers um, and trying to buy directly from them. But it's really difficult. If you have to navigate exporting from your country to another country, like I've had to look into exporting into the US and it is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> and like add in a language barrier and then add in the fact that you're not getting that much money for these beans anyways. Um, and you have to pay for licensing you, and unless your agreement has it, you have to pay for shipping. There's all of these additional costs that come with having an agricultural product that doesn't stay in your country and doesn't stay and get turned into something where you are. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder if um, if we could maybe take just a step back and can you describe a little bit what um, cacao farming is like? Because I imagine a lot of listeners like have, I've, I mean, I've never seen a cacao tree before. I imagine it's the same for a lot of listeners. You know, I've only had the pleasure of being on a cacao farm a couple of times. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm sure that they, the 
you know, the farmers themselves would be able to speak to it much better, but it is hot and sweaty work. Um, so cacao usually grows in what we call the cacao band. So about 10 to 15 degrees north and south of the equator. Um, so think hot tropical countries. Um, a lot of places are quite mountainous. So um, where they where they grow, they like to grow on mountains. Um, some people say that the higher altitude you are, the better flavor you get as well. Um, and so you get these kind of plantations that are really more like jungles you know when I think of a plantation I think of you know of course there's the classic American South like kind of flat fields um, or you might think of something like an orchard like when we think of trees here like apple farms and most of these places are not kind of like straight planted rows of cacao trees I know someone who used to describe chocolate as a really slutty um, fruit and uh, <laughs> it really likes to like crossbreed and just like drop seeds everywhere. And so the last time that I was on a farm and you looked around, there would be like, you know, one big cacao tree is fruiting and then you look on the ground and there's all these like tiny little ones that are like three leaves big. Um, and you, there's a lot of work in kind of like trying to maintain the space. Um, but then also like cacao trees are not, they're not super tall, so you might grow them below things like bananas um, and inter- intercropped with lots of other fruits. And then, um, depending like depending on where you're growing, some places are going to grow kind of like let them grow a little bit wild. So um, in Fiji, for instance, there are a couple forests there that let them grow entirely wild, and the farmers are really like harvesters. They go into the forest, they harvest pods that are ready, they bring them back to the farm to do fermentation and drying. Um, and in other places, they're a little more organized, and they're like, okay, kind of like taking care of their trees, cultivating, rotating. Um, and it really depends on where you're growing and kind of the style of the farmer and the style of the region. Hmm, that's very cool. And then, like, um, how does like cacao picking work? Um, so it's it's done by hand. So usually these trees are going to be maybe like six to eight feet tall. And whenever I say this, I always like look up because I'm five feet, but it's like not super <laughs> tall. The cacao actually grows right off of the trunk. So you get these little flowers that poke through the bark and then they form into the pods and kind of like swoop downwards. Um, and a tree might produce about like 20 to 50 pods a year, depending on um, how how productive it is. Um, so it's not a huge yield. Um, and you actually just kind of like pull it and then you take a machete and like hack it off of the uh, main trunk of the tree. And then you cut it open, scoop that out, that pulp out, um, usually by hand as well, uh, and then put that into a fermentation box. Gotcha. Okay. Now, now that we sort of understand a little bit how how it works, and you've talked about um, the problem of of child labor and connections to sort of exploitative labor conditions, I wonder if we can talk about like what are some of the major barriers to improving labor conditions? Uh, why hasn't there been much progress made on this issue on these issues? Uh, I think I think most of it comes down to it's like not precisely a lack of awareness, um, but sort of like a, a lack, a lack of pressure and a lack of like willingness to put pressure on to chocolate companies that kind of insist on low prices for chocolate. It's, 
I think, easy to say that you don't want to eat chocolate that was made by slaves, but when you don't know that it's, like, you know, no chocolate comes labeled, like, Kit Kats made by slaves, um, and it's it's easy to kind of not think about it when you're eating it. Um, and so there's definitely, that's definitely... I think a component of it is like, it's really easy not to think about it when you're consuming it. Um, and then there, there is this like incentive for big corporations to kind of keep their prices low and sell a lot of them. So for instance, earlier 2019, I think pretty sure it was 2019 Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana wanted to put a premium on their beans and basically raise the price of the beans um, per kilo by about 40 cents um, or about $400 per metric ton, which is a pretty substantial raise when you think about the average cocoa price um, trades at around $2 USD per kilo or about $2,000 per metric ton. So, you know, 40 cents on that um, is, is a pretty big change. And the response of corporate chocolate companies, like big chocolate companies, was not to like be like, okay, we're going to find ways to make this work, um, but was rather we are going to either pour money into other countries so that they can increase their cacao production and undercut Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, and then also... Um, Hershey's just this past month said that they're going to start engaging in cocoa futures. So basically locking in prices for the next foreseeable future so that they're able to avoid paying this premium. Um, and I think that's a pretty egregious kind of like way of going about it and saying like, you know, you acknowledge that we have this problem where we don't pay cocoa farmers enough and therefore they live at the poverty line and therefore you know, there are all these incentives to kind of like put children in labor um, and force labor into the industry. And the response is not, okay, let's figure out how to fix this. It's how do we kind of like stop that or find other ways to get what we want? Yeah, wow. Um, And like, how concentrated is the chocolate industry? Are the like Nestle's and Hershey's like, you know, how much of the industry are they? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so um, I think the biggest chocolate industries, um, I think that there's like five of them. Um, and uh, some of them, like you kind of, they're not the names that are on the things you're eating. Um, so Cargill, for instance, is um, a huge player in the chocolate market. Um, and they buy cacao and they process it kind of like up to the point where it is chocolate. And then they sell it to like a candy bar manufacturer. Nestle, of course, buys their own, makes their own. I kind of remember there's like about 11 big chocolate companies and if you really look at the top like half it's like maybe four or five wow okay so it's pretty concentrated so like the decisions of these companies like really impacts what the price is going to be overall yeah there's definitely a huge impact um depending on what these companies decide to do um and it has been really fun over the past decade you know we've seen like I've seen maybe like 500 tiny little chocolate makers decide, you know, we're going to start making our own chocolate. We're going to start buying our own cocoa beans. And that's such a cool thing to see. And I appreciate it so much, but they are a 
like a drop in a metaphorical ocean when it co- compares to how much Coco Nestle is buying uh, in a year. Yeah. I wonder if we can talk about um, the environment in chocolate a little bit, and then I want to swing back to talk about like what solutions are. But yeah, just to start with, what are some of the biggest environmental issues that the chocolate industry deals with? Yeah, so and I always think it's like twofold. There's one, like there are environmental issues that impact the chocolate industry, and then there are ways that the chocolate industry impacts the environment. I think you might have seen articles about like climate change means that like we won't have chocolate in the next like 50 years or something like that. (laughs) Um, And I always laugh because I think like, you know, as long as people love something and, and want to make it happen, they will find ways to farm cacao, (laughs) find ways to get chocolate to you. Um, And has been one of the very interesting things is as climate change has happened and we've seen kind of like year on year, you know, increased um, extreme weather events, drought, um, that they really have had an impact on the kind of traditional areas where cacao is farmed. So a lot of the Caribbean has seen so many hurricanes um, and this year in particular has been very bad for them. And uh, over the past three or four years, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana have both experienced extreme drought with temperatures reaching 40 degrees Celsius and higher on a regular basis, which is really like too hot for cacao um, to grow. And so they've seen a slight drop in yield. I I don't want to put a precise percentage on it, but it's definitely been a noticeable drop in yield. And for Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, that account for 60% of the world's production, you know, that's, that's pretty significant in terms of like impact on, on farmers and, and then also on, on the environment there. On the flip side, it has been interesting that, you know, the band that you can grow cacao in has sort of grown a little bit. 50, 60 years ago, Taiwan would not have been in the area where cacao would have been happy to grow in. Um, it would have been a little bit too cold, which is funny to think about. But, you know, as Canadians, <laughs> we're like, everywhere is everywhere is nicer than tropical, warmer yeah. than here. Yeah. So, you know, tr- tropical is all the same. But when you look at it, there really are some variations. And, um, you know, it's funny to hear about Hawaiian cacao growers, for instance, have to inoculate their beans or their trees um, and be quite careful about cold. Um, if it if it doesn't um, if it gets too cold, they can have um, severe impacts on their trees there. And it's like Hawaii. Hawaii is like a tropical, beautiful place. But uh, we've definitely seen this kind of like expansion of the band where cacao trees grow. On the other hand, sort of the impacts of chocolate production on you know, on the environment. Um, and definitely that's something where uh, in some places we've seen increased deforestation. Um, so in Cote d'Ivoire in particular, there are quite a bit, there's quite a bit of protected forest there that is not supposed to be used for cacao production. Um, and there have been reports that parts of it have been kind of like secretly deforested and hollowed out um, to allow for cacao production. 
Um, that kind of happens in other places around the world too. Um, and it's sort of like twofold. So I've heard of cacao farms being cut down and being replaced by palm oil. I've heard of forests being cut down for cacao trees. So it's a little bit like a little bit of both, basically. <laughs> and then in terms of production, chocolate does take, you know, not zero amount of energy to make. It's um, pretty water intensive depending on how you run your system. So you can design a chocolate factory that doesn't use as much water, like the machines don't run with water, but then your choices to clean your machines are to use other kinds of fats. Um, so if you're real fancy, you use cocoa butter, um, you might use sunflower oil or other fats to clean your machines and kind of running those through. And there's kind of like an added risk of adding more fats to the environment and adding like con contaminated water fats as well. And chocolate factories rely basically on heat. Um, uh, they have to kind of like continuously heat. So it's definitely not a sort of like zero energy situation or a carbon neutral energy situation to create chocolate. Um, so there's definitely some carbon intensity there as well. Um, though I couldn't speak to kind of like how impactful it was as opposed to like other manufacturing, um, but definitely some. But there are like choices that chocolate companies can make to be more or less, more or less efficient. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I always really appreciate, like, I, I love this idea of, like, gravity design, um, where uh, you can kind of design your factory so that it flows a little more. So you have to use less energy to move stuff around your factory because chocolate's really heavy. Um, but to be honest, if, uh, if you're in a chocolate factory and you're a small one, it's going to be a person moving that around. So it's really not that like carbon intensive. Right. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's hard on your, it's hard on your people um, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Back to the theme of deforestation, um, you'd mentioned that some of the cacao production is happening in these like protected forests. And I'm wondering, like, is it just like a lack of government oversight or, or why is that an issue? Yeah, so I think part of it is like lack of land and kind of what your expected yields are and what kind of yields as a farmer you need to make in order to survive as a person. Um, <laughs> and if the reality is that your farm that you have, if you have an acre of land that you're farming um, and it only produces like, I don't know, a couple hundred kilos a year. And if that's not enough, to feed you and your family or um, then you're going to have to find a source to make more money. Um, and if you already know how to farm cacao and you know of this forest and it's not super well protected, that you might make that decision. Um, I think the nationally protected forests in Cote d'Ivoire, certainly they are nationally protected for a reason, but I don't know what enforcement is like. And you know, that there have been reports of that happening. Um, and then definitely there are like choices and pressures put on by yield pressures um, that, you know, places want to allocate more and more land to production. Um, so that, that definitely happens as well. Yeah. So if the price was higher, then farmers wouldn't necessarily have to make these choices. Uh, I wonder if we can maybe, um, we'll go to 
the challenge that Kyla and I both did, and then we can maybe have a discussion about what ethical chocolate looks like. Kyla, do you want to go first? (laughs) Sure. I've just been sitting here quietly listening. (laughs) Really liking the conversation so far. Kristen said exactly, I was going to say one thing, which was, oh, sounds like raising the price of chocolate would solve a lot of these problems, but then Kristen got there, so. (laughs) (laughs) So the challenge this week was, I mean, you can probably guess for Kristen and I to find an ethical chocolate, but now that I've heard Sam tell us a little bit more about how opaque the system (laughs) is, I don't know if it's possible to find a truly ethical chocolate. I'm excited to hear what you two have to say, but I needed to buy some chocolate for some secret Santas that I'm in this year. (laughs) So it actually worked out perfectly. I went to Purdy's was the choice that I made, which is a Vancouver-based chocolatier that has been around for 113 years, which is pretty old by Canadian standards. And they're still privately owned. And I kind of read their history and it's, I don't know, boring, but they they don't seem like they're evil. <laughs> they they even started offering vegan chocolate recently, which I think is really cool. They say they use sustainable cocoa, but they haven't been certified. They say it's because the pressure it puts on the farmers is is too much. They say they pay premiums for their cocoa to support farmers uh, and to offer medical care and clean water in rural communities so that like by paying their premiums for the chocolate, those communities can afford those things. They have been recognized by slavefreechocolate.org, if that's a good organization, I'm not sure. But that was uh, that was what I kind of came up with. I hope that it's okay, because I did buy two pieces of chocolate from them, and they were delicious. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a lot of kind of forgiveness um, that we have to grant ourselves when we're trying to buy ethical chocolate. Because uh, to be honest, I think that these these systems that exist make it really hard for the consumer to make a good decision. Um, and, you know, the challenges that you just described, you know, you, you read their background, you, you know, did as much research as you really could into a company um, and made a decision that probably feels pretty good. And I honestly don't know a ton about Purdy's, but, you know, what I can say is like, based on, based on what you're telling me, like, you know, that they pay a premium to their farmers, that they, they care enough to kind of tell their customers about that um, means something, um, even if it's not perfect. Um, and I think it's rare that we'll find something that is perfect um, in, in that way. Well, I guess that's another solution is we could just all buy cocoa trees and grow our own cacao. Good luck with that in Vancouver, Kyla. <laughs> I know someone. I know someone who bought a bunch of cocoa trees and tried to grow them in his bathroom because it was like the only place I actually feel kind of sorry for his landlord because he turned his heat up to 28 degrees Celsius and then like made it constantly humid and wet in his bathroom. Um, So much mold. (laughs) I know. I was like, I really hope that's your second bathroom or something because I don't want to shower there. (laughs) But yeah, it's uh, it's tough to do in Canada. (laughs) Did he get a yield? Did he make chocolate? I think he ended up making chocolate, but maybe not from those trees. I haven't seen him in a while, so I'm going to have to ask. Is this where you've tasted the moldy chocolate? <laughs> no. Moldy chocolate was actually 
given to me by another chocolate maker, which um, I won't name, but was very funny. Sure. <laughs> they were like, this is moldy chocolate. What do you think? And I was like, uh. <laughs> it tastes like moldy chocolate. Thanks. Why would you make me eat this? <laughs> yeah. So I'll go to, to my challenge now. Is I've been drinking a lot of hot chocolate lately, as Kyla knows. Um, <laughs> and so I decided to look into the hot chocolate mix that I have been getting. I've just been scooping it from my local waste-free grocery store, so I didn't look into it at all in advance. It was completely unexamined. But I was very pleasantly surprised. Um, so it the uh, hot chocolate mix is from a brand called Camino, Um which is owned by a cooperative that's Canadian-based. It's actually Ottawa-based, um, called uh, La Siembra. So, we'll, I mean, we'll talk about, like, fair trade uh, certification as an approach to ethical uh, chocolate, but that that's the approach that they've taken. Um, and so all of their ingredients, except for sea salt, um, have either organic certification or fair trade certification or both. They also try to work with smallholder farmers to um, sort of build direct relationships. And um, their aim is to partner with small-scale cooperative producers as much as they can. So they had on their website where the, the chocolate and this hot chocolate mix came from. And for the item that I had, it was from the Dominican Republic from uh, like a producer co-op called uh, Conicado. Um, so I felt reasonably good that like, not only are they using these certifications, but they clearly like have relationships with um, specific like farmer cooperatives that they've had for like, in the case of the chocolate, it was like since 2003, they've been working with this organization. So I don't know, I feel pretty good about that. <laughs> but That's like the second time you've done a challenge by looking at your waste-free grocery store and come out <laughs> pleasantly surprised. So that's nice to know. Yeah. It's really great to be able to outsource all my choices to them. <laughs> I was going to say, like, kudos to your waste-free grocery store. <laughs> um, yeah, I've heard of El Camino before, um, and definitely they kind of, like, have done the, have done the work um, to, to get, get the chocolate to you, like, as ethically as I can. Um, and Conicato in particular, I've heard of in a few different uh, contexts. Um, and it seems like they are doing some pretty interesting work to empower their farmers. So that's cool. Um, and it's cool that you can get it like just bulk. That's, um, that's really awesome. But Sam, our real question is, you need to tell us what the most ethical chocolate is so that we can <laughs> make that choice without having to think about it in the future. <laughs> uh, it's really tough. So um, for me, there are a couple questions that I always ask. And one of them is like, how close can I get to the farmer? And, you know, if, for instance, Kristen, like, El Camino is working with Conicato, I'm like, that's, that's pretty close. Like, it's a farmer cooperative, which means that those farmers own that cooperative. Um, They're voting on how they access market they are um, hopefully taking some of those profits back and being able to invest them back in their own farms. Um, and so that's, I think, as someone who's just eating chocolate, that's about as close as you're going to get to your chocolate. Um, and I think for me, you know, the role that chocolate companies play is kind of building that relationship. Um, and so I, I always have this like niche idea, and I, I'm not sure if it's crazy or not. So, you know, check me. Um, but 
there are all these labels that exist, like fair trade, um, slave-free, um, organic, whatever it has you. And basically what those re- labels are is a substitute for your consumer to have a relationship with the person that is producing it or the person that's making it because you don't talk to the farmer. And so that label basically does the talking for you. It does the audit. It does the check. It looks at the farm and says, okay, this is what labor is happening. This is how much they're being paid. Um, And it's a way to kind of bring you a little bit closer. And I think the closer we can get and kind of narrowing that gap between the consumer and the producer, um, the more ethical it's going to be insofar as you have this kind of relationship of trust. Um, And so when I look at a chocolate, my first question is always, so can I figure out where I came from? If I can't figure out where I came from, do I know some way of finding that out? Will someone tell me? Um, And so that's what something like Fairtrade does, is Fairtrade kind of documents that relationship. Um, And there are some really cool chocolate companies that do farmer profiles, um, and they do traceability reports. um, And they kind of say, like, we bought this much cacao at this price from these farmers in 2019, or in 2020. For me, that is the closest we'll get at the moment, without having to change your consumer behavior um, or sorry, in, without having to change your political behavior for consumption. Um, so like if you're just going to stay a consumer, relying on those chocolate makers and those labels to tell you what's going on is going to be the closest we can get to ethical chocolate. Um, I think there definitely is a political component of it. So, you know, you can choose with your dollars in some ways, but in other ways, there's, I think like, the magnitude of unethical chocolate that exists won't change without there being some political pressure. Let me let me tell you the names of the chocolate makers that I really love that um, do this traceability report. Um, there's Raka, um, R-A-A-K-A, um, who's in Brooklyn, um, and they do this really cool, <laughs> and his, um, the guy who designed it, William, um, you know, we talk a lot, we talked about bit about this. Um, when you open up the wrapper, you can actually see all of the traceability information on the wrapper. So like how much they paid their farmers, who farmed it, literally like the names of the farmers and the people who are farming at the cooperative, um, where it came from, um, and a bunch of other statistics. So um, I always think that's really cool. Dandelion in the United States does this as well. They're based out of San Francisco. Um, Maru is based in Vietnam. They're one of my favorite chocolate makers of all time, um, M-A-R-O-U. And they work almost exclusively with Vietnamese farmers. Um, It's not a traditional cacao growing region, um, but some really, really cool stuff happening there. Um, And they're really supportive of kind of like putting money back into their farmers and into the land that they're working with. Um, So that is really cool. I mean, like, those are the questions I ask. I think, you know, sometimes you're going to be a little bit more ethical and a little bit less, and it's hard to say that anything is perfect. And, you know, we haven't really touched on, like, sugar, um, and it's like, you can only focus on so many things in so many bites. Otherwise, 
you're just never going to eat anything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which like, I've definitely considered. I've definitely just been like, uh, what if I just stopped eating food? (laughs) I feel like everybody goes through that in the ethical consumption journey. Like Lex talked about this in the sugar episode. She's like, I just stopped eating sugar for a while. And then I realized sugar was in everything. (laughs) I had to give up. (laughs) When I was like, 12 I did this challenge with my best friend where we tried to cut sugar from everything we ate um for a month and we just we just ran into roadblocks of literally everything you know one of the things that I do think is really cool um about really good chocolate is that you don't need as much of it a lot of people I've encountered they're like I love chocolate I just like can't stop eating it and I'll eat a whole bar in a day um but if you eat a really good chocolate that's like super rich um and and it's well made you actually like kind of get full after a little bit like like you're satisfied um and I actually ran into this problem when I was baking with chocolate where all of the recipes would say use like 300 grams of chocolate or use like six ounces of chocolate and I would start chopping up my chocolate um and then be like oh this is this is way too much chocolate um (laughs) and you can actually like start to scale it back a little bit so you know it's funny Kyla you say like you know a lot of these problems would be solved if you were willing to like pay more for your chocolate um but also realizing that maybe you don't need quite as much chocolate um if it's like really good chocolate (laughs) So you can pay slightly more for more expensive chocolate, but ultimately it might come out almost even if you're using less of it. Yeah. I love that. That's a great that's a great suggestion. <laughs> Duh. I don't know. It, it sounds really funny if you like don't think about it. Um, because it's just like, oh, eat less chocolate, then you'll be able to pay more money for it. Um, but that there's actually like some experience there that I haven't been quite able to put my finger on yet. <laughs> So is it fair to say that, like, if we think about, like, knowing the direct relationship with farmers um, as sort of, like, the best ideal in buying chocolate, would you put sort of certification as being, like, that middle layer that it's better than nothing, but there are limitations that um, would prevent it from being the best choice? Yeah. um, And I think, like, you know, it's it's interesting to think about the parties example, like if you don't pursue certifications, what the reasons for that are. Um, and a lot of the time it's because those certifications are expensive. Um, so before I, before I came onto this podcast earlier today, I just did a quick check to see like how much it would be for a small cooperative to become certified. And it's in the range of like two to 3000 USD a year. Um, for a small cooperative to become certified for the first year. And then it's maybe about 1500 to 2000 to maintain your certification every year after that. Um, and if you have an audit, the audit cost is on you as well. And the premium price that Fairtrade gets you is about 40 cents on top of that $2 for average cost. So um, kind of similar to what Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana were proposing earlier last year. Um, And so the premium, you know, doesn't really strongly outweigh the cost. Like you may not be making meaningful amounts more money if you're a farmer, if you pursue these certifications. Um, And so it can be quite challenging if you're a small scale farmer or a small scale cooperative um, to make, to make that choice. And, 
And I don't want to criticize anyone that does search for labels because I think you always have to start somewhere and the labels do have meaning. They, they have impact and they have meaning. Um, but that it can be easy as a consumer to kind of stop there and pat yourself on the back and say, okay, I got my fair trade chocolate and it's fair trade, so I feel good about it. And that's like all, that's all you're going to do. But it leaves behind the smaller co-ops, I guess. Yeah, and it leaves behind small co-ops um, and, you know, places where they don't have um, as much access. Um, and I know, and I and I think, I, I didn't even get to touch on this, but, like, even if you look at fine and flavor grade, like, top quality beans, there's some kind of aspects of pricing that, you know, don't make sense to me. Like, beans from Haiti cost less than beans from Venezuela. And the reason for that is flavor sort of. Um, and so there's, there's like some weird stuff going on there too. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder though, like, this is always my dilemma when it comes to stuff like this. Um, because we talked earlier about how like the big, like the Nestle's and the Cargill's are sort of driving so much of the industry. And like, I'm totally happy to trust so much chocolate maker if they're establishing relationships with, um, smallholder farmers, but I, I don't really trust Nestle. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know like what the, um, what the solution is for the, the broader market, you know, I just wonder if you have thoughts on that. Part of it is going to have to be sort of like real meaningful engagement with farmers on what a price would be that is livable on with an average yield. That makes sense. You know, it's it's kind of easy to do the math um, and then be able to push back, um, but and not so easy to kind of yeah place your trust in Nestle or place your trust in Cargill when their incentives are you know about profit. Um, I do really like the idea of um, farmer cooperatives um, that place more power and more ability to access market um, for farmers. I think that's really important. I do think that some of that pressure is definitely going to come from the consumer in asking these questions um, and making the choices to buy chocolate from chocolate makers that do have direct relationships with them um, and and kind of switching away. And, and part of it is going to be kind of like consumer literacy. It's like, how do you know when you look at a label? Um, and it's funny because like, you know, Nestle can be really good at labeling too. Um <laughs> It, and it can be kind of confusing as a as a consumer to be like, okay, well, like they say that they're like treating people fairly. So like, how do I know which one is actually treating people fairly? And I think that there's always going to be some manner of obfuscation there. In a broader sense, I I really struggle with you know what ethical chocolate looks like on like a a big huge sense. Yeah, I don't know that I have a good answer for it. Yeah, it's tricky. I was wondering, because earlier you had also mentioned um, that there were limitations on what you could do if what you were focusing on was your role as a consumer rather than your political behavior. So um, what would you say is like, um, politically, um, if somebody were willing to to take action, what, what are some of the most important things they could do? Yeah, so definitely, like, it would be really interesting to have governments say that they won't allow imports um, unless 
they can like co- companies can prove that they haven't been associated with human trafficking or slavery, slave labor. And I think that that question is actually kind of before the U.S. Supreme Court right now. And, you know, where they go with that, I'm going to be really curious about. But I think definitely part of it is going to be on the places that eat chocolate. Um, And I think it's fair to say that the places that grow chocolate are really not the places that are consuming most of the world's chocolate. And it will be on us and to put kind of like that political pressure um, to raise the price of cacao to say that, you know, things like financial markets that kind of speculate and, and meddle in cacao futures, like that's not acceptable, or there needs to be more regulation around it, or, you know, they can't undercut what countries are trying to do. And I think part of this can be built into things like trade agreements. And it, in other ways, it's a little bit tough because a lot of the times, you know, Canada is not importing cacao beans from Cote d'Ivoire. We're importing chocolate bars, which are produced somewhere, um, and or we're imp- importing chocolate that's produced and it's being turned into chocolate bars here. Um, and so at what point you can kind of place that onus on, on the chocolate company um, I think that's where your kind of political pressure comes in. I feel like it always comes down to that in our episodes whenever we're talking about an issue. Ethical <laughs> consumption can take you like part of the way, but ultimately um, the solutions are with government um, and we have to push for them. Um, I think that was all the questions that I had. Kyla, is there, are there any questions you want to add? No, I'm going to go buy some chocolate right now, though. So... <laughs> Actually, do you know what I'm going to do? Legit, I'm going to go steal one of the chocolates that I put in the Secret Santa bag out and eat that, and then maybe I'll buy another one or not. We'll see if my Secret Santa gets one after all. (laughs) Did you have anything else that you wanted to add, Sam? I I really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like you could tell us so much more still. I could talk about chocolate all day. Um, (laughs) Yeah. No, I just there there are a lot of people doing some like really great work kind of like looking at this. A lot of it is really academic and it can feel like you're wading through like really dense stuff um before you kind of get to the heart of like what the issues are. Um but I I really hope people don't feel scared to ask those or don't feel overwhelmed by like the vastness of it. Ethics in chocolate is an issue that has existed for hundreds of years, dating back to the first kind of European colonial influence in the Americas. Um, and it's not something we're going to solve easily. But I do think that, you know, we inherited this legacy and we can make it a little bit better. And, you know, if if one person listens to this podcast and like comes away being like, oh, I should just like look into where my Halloween candy comes from or what I'm buying for Christmas for chocolate. Um, that, that would make me very happy. Oh, fantastic. Do you want listeners to follow you anywhere where they can maybe learn more about the work that you're doing? Oh, I guess I have a Twitter account. It's um, Sammy Luke, S-A-M-I-E-L-U-C. I tweet a little bit about chocolate there and about other things I care about. Like your cat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Occasionally about my cat. Um, yeah. So you can follow me there. Um, but 
I'm always happy to talk about chocolate with people. Um, and so very often my DMs are just full of like, you know, I like stop working for half an hour. Don't tell my boss. And I just like talk about chocolate for a little while. <laughs> oh, cool. Awesome. So listeners can just straight straight to your DMs for all of their Yeah, questions. go straight to my DMs. <laughs> don't talk to me and Kristen. We, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you do want to talk to us, we're at Pullback Podcast. You can always hit us up there. We are happy to talk about chocolate. Don't know how, how much we can add to the conversation other than like, Purdy's is probably pretty tasty. <laughs> I, and if they want to... <laughs> Kyla's going to find out right yeah, away. Yeah, <laughs> if they want to sponsor us. I mean, <laughs> I, I know I, I joke about that every, every week. Uh, it makes us sound thirsty, but we'll do it. <laughs> Thanks for listening then. I I really enjoyed this and hopefully we can talk to you again in the future, Sammy, when when chocolate is ethical. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, sometime along uh, along the journey, I'm sure we'll talk again too. (laughs) 